0: Hey, everybody, before we get started, we have a live show to announce. We will be at the National Gallery of Art, Washington, for their NGA Nights programming. We'll be doing a live show there on September 12th. The program itself is running from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m.
1: We're actually going to do our show twice that night. Uh, you
0: do have to register for it, but the good news is registration is completely free. It's just a matter of signing up. Yep, you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you can click on the page where it says Live Shows, or you can go to mistinhistory.com slash shows. You will find a link for where you can register for tickets ahead of time. Again, this is a whole night of programming, and we plan to do the same show two times so that more folks have the chance to see it.
1: So we hope to see you in Washington, D.C. on September 12th. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Back when I was working on our recent Thomas Harriet episode, I stumbled across a Smithsonian Magazine headline that read, an ancient Greek philosopher was exiled for claiming the moon was a rock, not a god. Uh, naturally, I was very excited about this. I know I've been doing a lot of cosmology and a lot of lunar things specifically. Our John Wilkins episode was also recent. <laughs> I apologize. I promise I'll back up off this pony
0: after this. (laughs) Well, but then also this is a lot more in the realm of philosophy than astronomy in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about an astronomer to some degree, but really he was a philosopher. And we'll talk about how there's some some wiggliness in terms of of those terms as related to this person. Uh, but naturally, when I read that headline, I was like, what? Uh, I was just completely all in. And that headline is not false, but telling the story of Anaxagoras and his work in Unraveling the Mysteries of the Cosmos is a whole lot more involved than that, as any headline would, would naturally not be able to include everything. And it was in many ways, um, this work that he was doing was quite ahead of its time. And uh, yes, it was ahead of its time enough that he was criminally charged for it. But there is a lot more nuance to the story than that.
0: So, as is the case with so many people from the ancient world, the exact birth date for Anaxagoras is unknown. It's estimated that he was born sometime around 500 BCE. He was born in Clasomene, Anatolia, and that sat within the borders of what's modern-day Turkey today, along its western coast.
1: His father, Hedgesibillus, was a wealthy man, and he left Anaxagoras' significant landholdings. holdings. But Anaxagoras divested himself of his wealth, apparently giving it to relatives, and that was so that he could study philosophy without distraction. We don't really have any information on who his early teachers may have been. There is some mention of a potential teacher in some writing that that came after and referenced back to Anaxagoras, but the timeline there is a little bit squirrely, so it's not really conclusive. But one of the things that really marks his life as a philosopher is his heavy interest in science. And this was an ideology that was fairly common in Ionia, which his birthplace of Clasimene had been a
0: part Sometime around the age of 20, Anaxagoras moved to Athens. The exact dates are debated quite a bit for this. The reason is that historians have to work back from mentions of him, and really this is a case with a lot of philosophers, They have to work back from these mentions in other texts to sort of piece together what people's ages and locations were at various times.
1: (laughs) Yeah, one explanation I saw said um, something to the effect of he's referenced as A young man. And from that, they extrapolate that he was 20 because he (laughs) would have been considered a man, but still very young at that point. So it is that level of fluffy in terms of some of the logic. Some of it is a little more sound, but uh, that is why we're constantly throwing out these caveats that we don't really know the dates. It is probable that when he moved to Athens, Anaxagoras brought that ideology of scientific study with him. Although in the text of Diogenes Laertius, it says that Anaxagoras actually went to Athens to study philosophy there rather than arriving in the city already educated on the topic to some degree.
0: We know that Anaxagoras was not satisfied with the ideas of his predecessors. They were grouped under the umbrella of the Ionic philosophers. So his work was really creating a new path of thought, and that puts him in a category often referred to as the pre-Socratic philosophers. That term comes with its own baggage, but for shorthand and the purposes of this discussion, it delineates the philosophers who were thinking of cosmology and the physical universe versus the ones that followed, who were more interested in issues of morality. There's even a case to be made that these men were more like scientific theorists than philosophers, as the term is more often used today.
1: And Anaxagoras's ideas about that cosmos that he tried to unravel would eventually lead to some serious problems for him. But to talk about Anaxagoras and his philosophy, we first have to talk about what came immediately before him.
0: Leading up to Anaxagoras, there had certainly been other philosophers who were trying to deduce how the universe worked and what it was made of. I mean, that's something humanity has wondered about for as long as we've existed, there had been a popular theory in Greece that there was one primary and fundamental element that made up all things. A new idea had been put forth in the work of Parmenides, who est- who was estimated to be about 15 years older than Anaxagoras.
1: And we should point out, again, it's another caveat as we talk about this, that with any of these philosophers that we're discussing, there is a lot of interpretation in their work. And as a consequence, we are never speaking in absolutes. In the case of Parmenides, he wrote a metaphysical poem in which there is a substantial section about cosmology. And this is according to Diogenes Laertius the only work composed by Parmenides. We don't have any other works of his for comparison to get a full picture of his beliefs and ideas or how any of those evolved. So, interpretive analysis of this work and others varies a good bit in terms of what it's believed to be communicating. And there have also been debates about the translation of the existing fragments of this poem, which is called in the modern vernacular on nature, although we We don't know that that was ever the actual title.
0: In terms of how Parmenides shifted cosmological thinking, he asserted that the idea of one element was just a little too basic. It didn't offer any kind of explanation for how the universe or the world exhibited change or how things shifted around in the heavens. He thought there had to be more to it. One of the issues with interpretations of Parmenides is that the section of his work preceding his thoughts on cosmology was a discussion of what is and what isn't, including the possibility that all reality as we perceive it is drastically inconsistent with what actually exists and that the physical world is single and unchanging. So it's possible that his cosmological theories were not anything that he was seriously putting forth as any kind of objective truth.
1: And to further complicate things, we only have 160 verses of Parmenides' work, which is estimated to have included as many as 800 verses. So that means that the analysis that exists of it in the modern era is piecing together all of this ideology from less than one quarter of the total writing.
0: Following on this idea, the work of another philosopher, Empedocles took a different and more concrete approach to the problems that were presented by the idea of one singular elemental basis for all of the physical universe. Empedocles is unique among the group of philosophers we're talking about today because while his work also only survives in fragments, we have a lot more of it than we do for any of the others.
1: There are two partially surviving works by Empedocles. One is also called On Nature. That's a different book than the one we just referenced. The other is Purifications, although there is also the possibility that these were actually two parts of one larger work. That is, again, a matter of debate. But the important thing is that in order to reconcile the issue of one element not accounting for all of the attributes of a physical universe— he put forth the idea of four elements, those being earth, air, fire, and water.
0: Empedocles argued that it was these elements that were unchanging and and consistent and not, as Parmenides had argued, the entire world being unchanging. This was the basis of a cosmology that addressed Parmenides' idea of the existing belief in a static world and then reconciled that with the change that's always happening. The elements stayed static in Empedocles' version, but they were able to express in different and changeable ways.
1: And so we are about to get to Anaxagoras and his various ideas that would at least theoretically solve some of these issues of philosophical conflict. But first, we are going to pause for a little sponsor break. We have been talking about all of these various philosophers and their uh, ideas of one element that made up everything, then uh, four elements that make up everything, and then we get to Anaxagoras. Uh, He may have only written one work, and we only know of that because it was quoted by so many other philosophers that followed him. The actual work is completely lost he saw the possibilities of elements in a much more vast way. As in, he wrote about the idea that there were infinite elements. Now, obviously, we are not talking about elements in terms of the periodic table and the way we understand elements today. At this point in history, the idea of elements was much more about grappling with the physical universe's building blocks through the observable world around us. The microscope, for example, was almost 2,000 years away and would not happen until like, the
0: 1590s. So when Anaxagoras was talking about infinite possibilities for elements, the examples he used were things like bone, leaf, and flesh. He posited that, quote, there is a portion of everything in everything. The meaning there was that any given item, like a bone, also contained some amount of every other element, which enabled them to interact and change one another through that interaction. It was whatever element any given thing possessed in the greatest abundance that defined it as what it was. So a bone could contain leaf and flesh, but it mostly contained bone.
1: And in this way, everything in the physical world was connected with a sort of oneness. But elevating matter from being just some amalgam of assorted elements was Anaxagoras' idea of noose. And Noose, in his ideology, is interpreted as the mind, intellect, or reason, which he held up as the catalyst for creation of all things. In The Origin of the Cosmos, according to Anaxagoras, all of the elements were swirling together, not homogeneous, but also not defined in any way. He wrote, quote, all things were together, unlimited in both amount and smallness.
0: And then Noose set things in motion to first rotate around a point within the swirl of elemental soup, eventually leading to the separation and recombination of various things to end up with the development of the cosmos as it is known to humankind. I think all this is really cool.
1: It is really cool. It's one of those things where, as I research it, I'm like, at what point did this occur to him? Yeah. Because, again... We are talking about the fifth century BCE. Right. Uh, He did not invent the idea of noose. That concept had been germinating in some form or another in the work of other thinkers preceding him, but he is believed to be the first to actually define it. And to be clear, this was not the idea of a higher power or god entity. Noose is a part of the cosmos the, quote, finest and purest of elemental particles. This all gets a little heady, but uh, here's a passage that he wrote about Neuss. Quote, all other things partake in a portion of everything, while noose is infinite and self-ruled and is mixed with nothing but is alone, itself by itself. For if it were not by itself but were mixed with anything else, it would partake in all things, and the things mixed with it would hinder it so that it would have power over nothing in the same way that it has now being alone by itself. Noose has power over all things, Noose set in order all things that were to be and that were, and all things that are now. But no thing is altogether separated off or distinguished from anything except noose.
0: This idea of noose, as defined by Anaxagoras, can be tricky to wrap your head around. And that was true at the time he was sharing these ideas, too. Overall though, nous as a concept was pretty well received. Aristotle praised it, although he wasn't in favor of a concept of consciousness that acted without any sense of ethics or for the best of the universe, but randomly. Another criticism from Aristotle was that in trying to define nous Anaxagoras was incorrectly lumping the ideas of the mind and the soul together. And there is
1: some analysis of perception and the idea of mind as it relates to individual consciousness in the work of Anaxagoras, but little of his concepts on these particular matters are known. In the writings of Theophrastus, writing roughly 200 years after Anaxagoras, there is mention of that earlier philosopher, Anaxagoras, having a theory that like is perceived by unlike, i.e. we are conscious of that which is different from ourselves, our norms, etc. This seems to be more of an issue of sensation rather than any sort of personal or identity idea, though, i.e. we are used to a certain volume of noise in our lives. A louder-than-normal noise will be noticed. Uh, But Anaxagoras also thought that senses were rather feeble, and thus we really couldn't use them to determine truth.
0: Anaxagoras also spoke at length of the constant shifting that occurred as a result of the ongoing rotation of the cosmos. He threw out ideas of coming to be and passing away, which his predecessor Parmenides had written about, and instead he suggested that things are, quote, mixed together and dissociated from the things that are. The idea being that nothing has a true beginning or end, but is then part of an ongoing series of shifts. So Things are simply arranging and rearranging themselves.
1: Yeah, this even applied to the ideas of like birth and death, which is kind of a a really beautiful and poetic way to look at it. And this idea leads into Anaxagoras' description of the universe, which builds on his elemental and nous concepts. So the rotation that nous set in motion is central to the whole thing. And working from that, he asserts that certain elements have been sorted and separated by this force of this spin, and uh, they created the various celestial
0: bodies visible in the heavens. He also put forth the idea that the sun is composed of fiery metal. His sense of scale with this was way off. He estimated the sun to be about the size of Peloponnesus. The moon, on the other hand, he thought was an earthly clump, and he was correct about the nature of the moon's appearance. He stated that it produced no light of its own, but instead reflected the light of the sun. He also came to the conclusion that the moon wasn't smooth, but had mountainous regions.
1: Yeah, if you recall our recent episode on John Wilkins, by the time we are into the 1600s, people are back to thinking the whole thing is smooth, but this guy had it figured out almost 2,000 years earlier. Like, no, it's got some got some topography. Uh, Anaxagoras also posited that ongoing cosmic rotation would sometimes lift objects into the atmosphere and away from Earth, and that these objects could form obstructions that would prevent humans from seeing things in space on occasion. And that same force of the spin in certain circumstances could also fling objects to Earth, i.e., he was describing meteors.
0: That discussion of obstruction is related to another more specific idea that Anaxagoras is credited with, and that's being the first to figure out what caused eclipses, although he wasn't 100% accurate. He understood that lunar eclipses were the effect of the Earth cutting off the light of the Sun that normally reflects off the Moon, but he thought that solar eclipses and new moons were also linked Even though he didn't have the mechanics all worked out, the fact that he spoke of these events as things that happened when heavenly bodies moved around and got in each other's ways rather than being the work of a deity was actually a really important thing.
1: And Anaxagoras may have been the original flat-earther, though. Uh, His idea was that the planet's weight was supported by a cushion of air. And the Earth, he believed, was stationary and was not spinning, which is a little unclear how that works in the spinning cosmos theory.
0: So, while that's a bit of a disappointment, uh, because he was kind of an outlier in terms of people who really did seem to believe that the Earth was flat, he also put forth the idea that there could be other worlds inhabited by other people who were also creating civilizations. This is a little unclear, though. He may have been suggesting a vastness of the cosmos that could contain other conditions that could create life similar to that on our planet— Or he could have just been riffing on the idea that we mentioned earlier, that everything contains something of everything else. So potentially right here on Earth, there are smaller iterations of our own cosmos playing out. He believed in the infinite subdivision of matter and its components, so the idea of worlds contained within worlds is a possible interpretation of his writing in this area.
1: Yeah, his idea of things being infinitely subdividable made me think a lot of fractal geometry. Oh, nice. Uh, and it—it it, again, I'm let—I continue to be boggled that he was kind of on to the early idea of these concepts so far ahead of it. pretty much everybody else. Uh, so, coming up, we are going to talk about the friendship that may have led to the trial and exile that we mentioned at the top of the show. But first, we are going to have a quick word from one of the sponsors that keeps stuff you missed in history class going. <laughs> jumping to talking for a moment about Pericles, who was born an estimated five years after Anaxagoras. And he was an Athenian-born Greek statesman. Uh, He is known for the construction of the Acropolis and the Parthenon, which were both built under his leadership as ruler of Athens. He was a a big fan of the arts. And he and Anaxagoras, who was well-known among the prominent men of Athens became quite good friends.
0: The rule of Pericles, which was so significant that it's referred to as the age of Pericles in in histories of the time, was the result of a significant overhaul of the Athenian government. Pericles had catalyzed a vote in the Athenian assembly in 462 BCE, and that caused a huge shakeup. The existing aristocratic council, called the Areopagus, was disbanded after this vote, and one of its most prominent and conservative members, Keman, was exiled. Keman's
1: removal from Athens represented a very serious change in policy. While he had remained on the council, he had prioritized an ongoing relationship with the Spartans, one that was friendly, but once he was gone, it opened up the door for Athens to retake Delphi from Sparta, which happened under Pericles' leadership in 448 BCE.
0: In Plutarch's Lives, he wrote a number of things about the friendship between Anaxagoras and Pericles, but they're very complimentary of the philosopher. So here's a quote But the one who most associated with Pericles and who most bestowed on him that dignity and wisdom more weighty than demagoguery, and on the whole raised up and exalted the worthiness of his character, was Anaxagoras of Clazomenae. Men used to call him mind, either because of their amazement at his great and prodigious understanding of natural philosophy, or because he was the first to institute neither chance nor necessity as the principal order of the universe, but rather mind, pure and unmixed among all the other mixed things.
1: And the reason that we are giving you all of this background on Pericles and his friendship with Anaxagoras is to set the stage that while Pericles was definitely a powerful ruler who ushered Athens into what what we would consider its modern democracy, his leadership did represent a very big shift in Athenian politics, and big shifts in politics are never universally applauded. So he had plenty of critics at all levels of government and the aristocracy. And that meant that in being closely associated with Pericles, Anaxagoras had the same enemies.
0: There was also the matter of Anaxagoras and his writings, which were praised by some of the aristocracy, but not really welcomed universally. So again, in the words of Plutarch, quote, "...these are not the only advantages that Pericles enjoyed because of his connection with Anaxagoras." It seems that Pericles rose above superstition, that attitude of astonishment about celestial occurrences that is produced by those who are ignorant about the causes of things and who are crazed by divinity and divine intervention because of their inexperience in these areas. Natural philosophy substitutes for festering superstition the unshaken piety that is attended by good hopes." So all of this move
1: to a more scientific explanation of the physical world that Anaxagoras was working on was at odds with a large part of the population, which remained very superstitious and very much, you know, in a long-term cultural tendency to, you know, attribute happenings to the gods. Uh, The heavens and their movements were explained through fables and revered stories that credited gods with various phenomena that weren't scientifically understood. So when Anaxagoras just started explaining it all taking away all of that mystery, it really did not make him a particularly popular man.
0: Eventually, in the mid-5th century BCE, this led to a charge of impiety toward the gods leveled against Anaxagoras, because to once again quote Plutarch, quote, "...at the time, people did not tolerate the natural philosophers and the so-called stargazers because they reduced the divine to unreasoning causes, non-providential forces, and necessary happenings." And because of the close association with Pericles, when this impiety charge arose, it was at least partially motivated as an attack on the ruler of Athens.
1: Yeah, they couldn't directly go after Pericles, but they could go after his friends and kind of weaken his support base. And we know that Anaxagoras was imprisoned for a time, but his trial is largely lost. There are mentions of it here and there, throughout the historical record, but any record of the actual proceedings is long gone. And it appears that there were actually two different charges. There was one for impiety and another for medism, which was being politically sympathetic to Persia. And that's because two different outcomes to a trial of Anaxagoras appear in various writings. And we do know that Pericles interceded on the philosopher's behalf regarding the impiety toward the gods charge. The end result was that Anaxagoras had to pay a fine, and he also had to leave the city.
0: So sometime around 450 BCE, Anaxagoras did leave Athens. He moved to Lampsacus, where he lived out the rest of his life. There was another trial, probably held without him present because he had already left, that led to a death sentence. Anaxagoras reportedly smiled when he heard about the second outcome. Yeah, he was already safe in Lampsacus,
1: And Anaxagoras lived until the age of 72 in that city, he spent more than two decades living there, apparently quite happy. He was very revered by the citizens of Lapsakis. Uh They are said to have celebrated him when he died.
0: And today, there is a crater on the moon named for him. Yeah. Uh, he's a
1: fascinating, fascinating creature. I think it is near the North Pole. And you can actually see it uh, with the naked eye on a, a good clear night where there's a full moon because it has a, a pretty unique... Level of of height to it that leads into the crater, like its lip is high. If I am understanding it properly, that is Anaxagoras, the impious philosopher <laughs> uh, who dared to think that things were physical happenings and not deities floating through the celestial
0: sky. Yep. Uh, do you have listener mail to close us out?
1: I do. This is uh, a listener mail that is, uh, it even in its title mentions that it is referring to an episode from four years ago, but it made me love it. It says appreciation for narcolepsy episodes, despite being four years late. Uh, And this is from our listener, Christina, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a fairly new listener, but a longtime history enthusiast. I've been going back through the archive, and I just listened to your live program on Safety Coffins dated October 31st, 2018, in which you mentioned a past narcolepsy episode. And this led me to immediately go and listen to the two narcolepsy episodes from 2015. I was recently diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexy last fall. I really appreciate that you discussed how very often narcolepsy is misdiagnosed or undiagnosed in many cases. It took more than 20 years of complaints before a doctor took my complaints seriously, and my symptoms were previously misdiagnosed as depression, despite no symptoms other than tiredness. In my experience, many people have no idea what narcolepsy is, and those that do have a very limited concept of its symptoms. I really appreciate that you both highlighted some of the rather surprising, to most, symptoms and brought people's attentions to them. As someone who has been trying to understand a diagnosis of narcolepsy and struggle. Link to explain it to friends and family, I appreciate having the perfect podcast to point them to for an explanation. I love all your podcasts. Keep it up. Uh, thank you so much, Christina. That's so lovely. I know uh, part of the reason that I wanted to do those, and I think I mentioned it in the episode, is that I have a couple of friends in my life who have been diagnosed with narcolepsy, and they so often were mischaracterized as just being like lazy or in some cases even stupid, which is ridiculous if you know these people. Uh, so that's why it's kind of important to me. To talk about stuff like that. It's a good reminder. Four years seems like a good uh, gestation period for another reminder brought about by your email. So <laughs> thank you so much for writing us. If you would like to write to us, uh, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can find us at mistinhistory.com where all of the episodes of the show that have ever existed, more than a thousand, all live. Uh, any of the shows that Tracy and I have been working on, just the past six and a half years or so. Uh, We'll have show notes. Uh, The ones that precede it probably don't, but you never know. There are some good blog posts back there. Uh, We suggest that you subscribe to this podcast. That helps us and makes your life easier because you don't have to hunt for downloads. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts, uh, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever it is that you listen.